Our second Bible reading for tonight is from Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 940. Starting from verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ruhami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Save your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. This is God's word. Thank you, Hannah. Well, we are starting a new series on the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's known as one of the minor prophets. There are major prophets and minor prophets. The minor prophets are minor because their books are minor, they're shorter. They're not as big as the major prophets and that's the only difference really. Now, how are we meant to go about understanding this book? How are we meant to go about making sense of this prophet who wrote to another nation? didn't write to Australia? How do we go about making sense of this book written in another time, written 2,750 years ago? How do we make sense of a book like this written in another place, in the ancient land of Israel? Well, for us to understand this book properly, we need to understand this book in its biblical context. That is, where does this book fit into the salvation plan of God? Remember our series from last year. The book of the Bible is one big story about God's salvation plan. So where does this fit in that big story? Well, where it fits is it's before Jesus, which means that it's still looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Now, the other question we need to ask is, where does this book fit in the historical context? Where is it located in human history? You see, what we're looking at are not just stories, nice stories for kids, though they're they're a bit M-rated for kids anyway. These are real stories. These are real historical events. 
And so when did the story of Hosea take place? Now I thought today I'll do something different in kids. During the kids talk they get to use kids. I want to do something like that, but with you guys. Uh, just for us to see where this happened in, in history, in the historical context. Now thinking back, in Genesis we had a very important man by the name of Abraham. So I'm going to ask Phil. Phil's going to stand here. He is a very old man, Abraham. Abraham lived, facing Abraham, old man, 2000 BC. So how long ago is that? About 3000 years ago. Is that right? 4000 years ago, sorry. Yeah, 4000. Old man, okay. 2000 BC. Now the next important character that comes, the person who comes in the Old Testament, is the man by the name of Moses. He lived about 1500 BC, which is three and a half thousand years. And so I'm going to get Caleb, you're Moses. So I'm just trying to let you see the historical context. Moses, right, the man, the prince of Egypt who delivers the people of God. Abraham, the one God calls and blesses. The next important guy is King David. So, Erwin, you're King David. King David lived about 1000 BC. Now this was a warrior, one of the, the, the best king they've ever had. Okay, he, he defeated the enemies, he brought peace to the land. Now after him he had many sons, but the important son was a king by the name of Solomon. So Sam, you're Solomon. Solomon was one generation after David, so about 970 BC. Okay, Solomon. Alright, let's do a quick review, okay? This is what we do uh, to learn the dates and times. Abraham, what year? 2000 BC. Moses, what year? 1500. Who's this guy? Ah, good. Alright, what year? 1000. And what about this guy? Solomon. And what year? 970 BC. This one was an interesting one. Um, he, this was the golden era of Israel's history. He benefited from his father, there was peace, and so he brought prosperity to the land. It was the time of wealth. They had so much wealth they couldn't count. And this guy had way too many wives, way too many, and that was his downfall. Though he was the wisest man, he listened to his wife, not that that is a bad thing, but he listened to his wife and worshipped their gods. And so he was good for the beginning of his reign, but then he went bad. Then God's judgment on this man was tragic, was terrible. Now we need another person, so we're going to ask Anna. Anna is not a person. Anna represents the kingdom of Israel. Now, what year was this guy? 970 BC. Now, in 922 BC, something terrible happened. Something really terrible. In the reign of Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided in two. This is Israel, you're chopped in half. The top half is the northern kingdom, known as Israel, and the bottom half, the lesser half, the one with only two tribes, that is the southern kingdom, known as Judah. What year was this? 922 BC, very good. And then 200 years after the split of the kingdom, we had someone else. Um, Lara? Lara, very nice and gentle, but she's going to be the, the, the ruthless Assyrians. So you're over here, Lara. Lara 
it represents the Assyrians, the kingdom to the north of Israel. So you're above Anna. You come along 200 years after the split of the kingdom and you take away the top half. So the Assyrians, ruthless, ruthless kingdom, takes away the top half, destroys them, decimates them. Okay, be mean. <laughs> what year was, did the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom? 722. 722. Let's do a quick review. Down there. Who's that guy? Yep, what year? 2000 BC. Next. Moses. 1500 BC. This guy? David. 1000 BC. This guy? 970 BC. 922, the split of the kingdom. 922, the split of the kingdom. And Lara. 722, the Assyrians, the Assyrian conquest. Now, Hosea, where does he come along? Now, Hosea, I'm going to get Phoebe. Hosea was a man, by the way, a prophet. Hosea comes in about here, close to the destruction of the northern kingdom. And he comes in around 750 BC. Okay, so you got all that in your head. The kingdom was divided in 922, destroyed the northern one, 722. Hosea started his ministry about 750 BC. All good? All right, thank you. Thank you for your help. We'll do some revision every week, okay? So that's the historical context. Now let's turn to Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. Hosea comes along, he reminds the people of God of their past and then he also warns them of their future. So chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So that was the historical context. This was a true uh, event, a real event in history. Now what did God say to Hosea? Now what we find here with Hosea is quite different to the other prophets we find in the Old Testament. You see, the job of the prophets was to reveal the mind and will of God. And so God said, you go and you say these things which reveals my will and my mind. And the prophets, they went off and they did that. But you see, with Hosea, it was quite different. Hosea was not only given the task to go around speaking the will and mind of God, he was also called to experience the heartbreak of God in his living. So not just in his speaking, but in his living, he experienced the heartbreak of God. And so, in a sense, this was an enacted prophecy lived out in his life experience. Now what did God get Hosea to do? Look at verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Now I want you to just consider that. What a bizarre command. What a strange command. What an outrageous command. It's not Hosea, go and search for the most beautiful lady in the land, the most righteous, upright, pure, faithful woman in the land and marry her. That's what you expect God to say. 
Instead, what do we see here? Go find that woman who shows no promise that she'll love you, who shows no promise that she'll remain faithful to you, who shows no promise that she'll keep her marriage vows to you. In fact, find a woman who has done everything you don't want in a wife. Just consider that command. I mean, and not only that, God goes on to say, children as well, children of unfaithfulness. She may have had children already, fathers who are unknown. Take them as your own. What an outrageous command. But why did God get Hosea to do that? Well, we're told in the next bit of verse 2, have a look. Because the land, the land of Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And so here God is setting up a parallel in this real life illustration with Hosea. He's setting up an analogy, an illustration with the life of Hosea. You see, the adulterous life of Hosea's wife is going to be a reflection of the adulterous life of the nation of Israel. Do we get that parallel? The wife of Hosea is to represent the nation of Israel. And then what we'll go on to see in this series is the faithfulness, the faithful commitment of Hosea to his wife. It's going to be a reflection of the faithful commitment of God to the people of Israel. So do you see those two lots of parallels? Hosea's wife with the nation of Israel, Hosea and God. You see, the reason why this illustration is used is because in the Old Testament, God in fact describes his relationship with Israel as her husband. And so, for example, in Isaiah 54, God says, For your maker is your husband. You see, God is trying to express this is the type of relationship God has with his people. It's not just simply king and subject creator and created, but husband and wife. And so we see here, for your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And so the type of relationship God had with his people is a relationship of commitment towards them, of faithfulness towards them, of covenant love towards them just like in a marriage. And so Hosea is called to express this type of covenant love towards his wife, this faithfulness and commitment to his wife that God calls him to marry. And so what will happen? As we saw in that video, Hosea will end up experiencing the heartbreak of God, the heartache of God. And so what did Hosea do? Well, he actually did exactly what God commanded him to do. No objections, no complaints that we hear of, no rebellion. Verse 3, So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And what was the result of this sort of unbecoming marriage? Well, we have three children with three rather interesting names, symbolic names. Now, if you're not... Yet aware, we've got three children, Esther, Caleb and Ether. They're actually all Old Testament names. We never thought about using these names for good reason and we'll see why. And so we come to the first child. The first child was born and he symbolised the coming judgement. Look at verse 4 to 5. 
Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. What's going on here? Anyone know who Jehu was? Anyone know where Jezreel is? You don't actually need to know to know that that's not what you want to call your son. It's not a good thing, right? It's not looking good for the nation of Israel. Well, Jehu, anyway, he was the 11th king. So, you know, Anna standing up here, the northern kingdom, when that was its own entity, its own kingdom, the 11th king in that kingdom was Jehu. And he was responsible for killing the king before him, his own king, the 10th king at Jezreel, at that place in Israel. And this king, Jehu, he completely destroyed that dynasty, killed everyone in the family line, in Ahab's dynasty. He massacred the whole family, also in Jezreel. But more than that, with this taste of blood, he went around killing a lot. He went on killing more and more of Ahab's family, his chief men, close friends, priests, and all these other worshippers. And so Jezreel, that place in Israel, became known as a place of bloodshed, as you can imagine. It's a bit perhaps, a bit like perhaps today, Auschwitz, if we were to talk about Auschwitz. 1.1 million people died there in the concentration camp. No one would imagine naming their son Auschwitz, right? Auschwitz, when? This doesn't sound right. But here God names the son Jezreel as a sign of the coming judgment and also as a sign that history will repeat itself for Jehu's own dynasty. His dynasty will also be destroyed and that place will be the site of Israel's demise. And that's what we see in verse 5. Have a look. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. You see, he's going to destroy them. He's going to show them how futile, how foolish it was for them to trust in their bow, in their military power. They should have trusted in God, but they will be destroyed. And so the first sub, that was a warning to the nation. Judgment is coming. You in your adulterous ways, you going off with other gods, your offspring is judgment. The consequence of your adultery is judgment. But of course, that was not all. He had a daughter. Verse 6. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Loru Hamar, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Again, you wouldn't name your daughter this name. This doesn't sound good and it's actually not good. If you look in the footnote of your Bibles, it just means not loved. Not loved. This is the terrifying consequence of leaving God. You will not have the love of God if you choose to leave him, if you choose to turn away from him, if you choose to reject him. To leave God means to also leave God's love. It means to also leave God's forgiveness. And it means also to leave God's mercy, you see. Think about this. It should make sense. If we are to find God's love, we need to go to God. If we are to find God's mercy, we need to go to God. If we are to find God's forgiveness that he offers, we need to go to him. If I leave God, then there is none of that. 
And so that was what Israel chose to do. With all their fake gods, their idols, they were committing adultery against God and that was their idolatry. Their adultery was idolatry. And so there's no love they'll find from these idols, from the lump of wood, from the block of stone, from the chunk of metal. They will find no love from those things. Now this is important for us to know and to consider. Many of you will know that at the moment we're running this Christianity Explored course at our place. A wonderful course allows participants to raise all sorts of questions. One of the better questions that was raised a few weeks ago was this. If God is all-loving and all-forgiving, why can't he even forgive you if you worship something else? Do you get that? If God is all-loving and forgiving, why can't he just forgive you even if you do remain a Buddhist or a Hindu? It was a very good question. What do you say? Can God forgive you if you choose to worship something else? Well, the reality is that to, to turn your backs on God, to reject God, it means to reject God's love. So if you choose something else, you're not choosing God. There's no love if you choose to reject the lover. And there's no forgiveness if you choose to reject the forgiver. And so there is no forgiveness if you choose to worship something else. That is, like Israel, to commit adultery against God. And so that was their idolatry. But here we see Judah, the southern kingdom, so the, the bottom half of Anna. It was different. Look at verse 7. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, which were the very things the northern kingdom relied on and depended on. They depended on their military might instead of God. But Judah will be saved by the Lord their God. God will save them, not by their military power, but God will save them. But Israel, the second child, they will experience no love. That is their judgment. But that's not all. Finally, one more child. Have a look, verse, verses 8 to 9. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now think about those words. The promises, remember, Abraham over here. The promises God made to Abraham and his descendants was that they will be gods. God will be their God and they will belong to God. But yet here, this judgment, this is the ultimate judgment. That will be reversed. That will be something that will come to an end. Because what, what this means is that they have really have forsaken God and so God will forsake them. What this judgment meant was that it will mean the end of that nation, which we saw happen in 722. Now, if you were an Israelite and you heard this, the third son, the name of the third son, this would have been horrifying. This would have been terrifying. The thing you held as the greatest honour and privilege as a human being on earth were those promises through Abraham that God chose you to belong to him, that God chose you and set you apart from all the nations of the world to belong to him, that God chose you and that was his great promise. You see, this was what was promised in Deuteronomy. 
For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. But now with this last child of Gomer, the judgment is you are no longer considered people of God, God's treasured possession, for you have prostituted yourself to other gods. Now if you were an Israelite, there would have been nothing more condemning, more damning than that judgment. And so if we think about this now, three children, things were looking bleak. Things were looking miserable and hopeless for the northern kingdom. Their end was coming soon. There will be judgment. In Jezreel, they will experience no love and they will cease to be the people of God. But do you notice there was a change in mood in verse 10? Just before anyone thinks all hope is lost, just before anyone thinks God has given up on his promises, just before anyone thinks God has given up on Israel, there is this glimmer of hope towards the end of our passage. You see, from the heyday, the golden era of Solomon, things were declining for both the northern and southern kingdom. Their numbers have been dwindling and the northern kingdom, they'll soon be decimated in 722. What do we see in verse 10? Have a look. A change in mood, verse 10. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. They were the promises to Abraham. God will be faithful to his promises. And then we read on, in the place where it was said to him, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In fact, the promises has gone bigger. They're not just going to be considered the people of God. They've been brought in as sons of the living God. And then verse 11, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. There is this promise here that one day there will be unity between the north and the south. No longer enemies, but united under, notice that, under one leader. It's giving us a hint here. Under one leader, under one appointed leader of God. And now that place, Jezreel, remember that place of bloodshed, the place of judgment. That place now is also transformed, you notice that. It's also reversed. Jezreel was the place where the Israelites, many of the Israelites were killed and butchered. But the word Jezreel means something else. It was a place, a location, but the word means God sows. And so the same word now is used as a sign of grace. The place is a sign of judgment, but the meaning of the word is a sign of grace. And so God will sow so that the people will increase and be as numerous as the sand in the seashore. And so we're actually seeing the the, the judgment reversed here. And so chapter 2 verse 1, Say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, my loved one. You see the not is taken away there. And so what we're seeing here is the complete reversal. It was terrible. Judgment was terrible. But yet we're seeing the reversal of those punishments symbolised by those children. Jezreel, no longer a place of bloodshed and judgment, but God's sowing, increasing their number. Not love, now they are loved. Not my people, again will be my people. 
or reversed. And so, if the judgment of this adulterous nation was terrible, how much greater are these promises of hope? The promises of hope that we leave with at the end of this chapter all will be reversed. And so the book of Hosea is an enacted prophecy played out in the life of Hosea. Terrible consequences, terrible judgment, but yet with a hopeful future. And this sets up the pattern and framework of how we will read Hosea. We will see sin, we will see judgment, and then we will see salvation. Sin, judgment, and then salvation. In fact, something we see throughout the Old Testament. And so now let's bring it back to us. Today, 2015. What are we meant to learn from this passage? What are we to take home? What are we to take away? Well, what we are to take away is that this book was written not just for them, not just for the Israelites, but for our benefit today. It is for our benefit today. Firstly, what we get to see from this first chapter, we get to see the heart of God, what God is like, what the creator of the universe is really like in his character, in his nature. You see, God is not an impersonal God. He didn't create the world and then left us to our own devices and he just sat down and watched and watched us make a mess of this world. That's not what God is like. And God is also not unaffected by the things we do in this world. When people hurt each other, when people love things God made more than him, when people chase created things rather than the creator, God is not unaffected by that. It grieves him. And that's why in this book we see the metaphor of marriage used to represent God's relationship with the nation of Israel. You see, God wanted to show them this is a personal God who dearly loves these people, who is dearly committed to them, who wants to be faithful to them, who will love them. These are God's covenant promises, God's love towards his people. We're actually getting inside the heart of God. This is what God is like. He makes a promise. A promise. He will keep it. And so when they, the nation, prostituted themselves to the gods of the land, and the god of the land was Baal, where they turned to Baal for, for a good harvest, for a good crop, for fertility, for children, they in fact broke their covenant promises with God. They committed adultery with these gods and so they broke the heart of God. You see, we're meant to get a sense of that. We're meant to get a sense of the hurt that God feels when people turn away from him. I mean, just think about this on a human level. I don't think there's really many things that would hurt more than the unfaithfulness, infidelity and betrayal in marriage. I mean, marriage is one of the tightest bonds there are. And so to betray that, to commit adultery, what would hurt more than that? And God wants us to see that, that he is hurt. He grieves when his people adulterate themselves with other gods. Just imagine, if you're married or not, just imagine. You have a wife or a husband and you love your wife or husband with all your life. You make all those sacrifices for your spouse. You, you, you work hard for them, 
you provide, you clean, you cook, you do so much for your spouse. You lay down your own interests for their sake. You're always seeking their good. That's what a spouse should do. But then your spouse, your husband and wife, goes off with another man or another woman, just like that video. How would that make you feel? I don't think anything hurts more than that. These promises, these vows, they're binding. They're meant to hold the two together, but to break that in that way, that is painful. And so can you imagine the pain, the heartbreak and the grief if it was to happen on a human level? But now imagine that pain, that heartbreak and that grief on the level of God. And so firstly, you should, well, we should see here that sin, sin is no small matter. Always has consequences. Always has consequences. When I seek my fulfilment, my satisfaction, my worth, my value in whatever it is, in my studies, in my work, in my wealth, in my pleasure, even in my family, seek it in those things and not God, you know what I've done? I've committed adultery against God because it's idolatry. There's a close connection between adultery and idolatry and it breaks the heart of God. And so today I want us to feel the weight of sin. It is serious. It is terrible. Even on a human level, to try to break Yvonne's heart in any way, I would, I would turn away from I would flee. I would not do it. But yet we are so flippant when it comes to breaking the heart of God. We are so flippant with those sins, the idols in our lives that we would strive for instead of striving for God. And so first I want us to see sin is no small matter. God is personal and grieves our sin. But here we see the, see the heart of God, but in this passage you also see the plan of God. And this plan of God, written back then in the time of Hosea, it actually involves us today. We are involved in this plan of God. You see, Israel, they were destroyed in 722, the northern kingdom, by the Assyrians. But then God made those promises at the end of this chapter. Remember those? There will come a ruler to unite the people of God. It's just hinted here. Who, who's this ruler? Who will unite the people of God? Who will lead the people of God? And just like in Sunday school, the answer is Jesus. It is Jesus. He is the ruler that God sends. And that should be surprising. The ruler who comes from the line of David is in fact also the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And that's why the Gospel of Mark begins, this is the beginning of the good news, of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The King has arrived. Gospel is good news. Next promise. Those who are not God's people will become sons of the living God. I mean, this is an amazing promise. Not just being people as subjects of God, but sons of God. Well, what happened when Jesus came along? In the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read this, John chapter 1. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see those wonderful promises in Hosea, they involve us today if we respond in this way. And who are those who make up the numbers of the, the sand in the seashore? Is it the Israelites? 
native Jewish people. They're actually not that numerous. They're actually not, not that numerous at all on the world scale. It can include them. But really, those numbers, those great numbers, is talking about all the Christians who are now brought in. All the Christians who are now brought in, and this is what 1 Peter speaks of. But you now, people today who trust in Jesus, you are a chosen people. They were the words that were said to, to the Israelites early on. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And notice the similarity here. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See how wonderful and profound those promises are? In the time of Hosea, it was despairing. They were waiting for that promise. We see that now after Jesus. And so in this book, in this chapter, Hosea shows us the heart of God. We wouldn't commit adultery against anyone, but how flippant we might be in committing adultery against God as we strive and live for those idols. But here we also see the glorious plan of God, the glorious promises of God, the hope of all Israel is now seen in people like us in Christians who trust in Jesus. And as we continue to look at the book of Hosea, we'll see this theme develop, judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. But let us now pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Hosea was able to experience at least part of your heartache, your grief against human sin, that we might see and sense how terrible it is what humanity has done. We thank you, Lord, for your wonderful promise, which we now see fulfilled in Christ, that we might be a part of. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we continue to consider the book of Hosea, you might help us see all the more clearly your glorious covenant love, unfailing love for your people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.